This is the Critical Conversations podcast, a KPOV special project developed to feature unique perspectives and the courage it takes to go there, challenge mundane thought, and question the norm. Welcome, Gay. No, thank you for having me here. Will you tell our listeners about the Institute, the center, and what all you do there? It's amazing, actually. The Carrillo Center for Nonviolence was established in 2008 in response to the work that I had done in identifying and diagnosing post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, in free-living free elephants in South Africa. And the field uh, of, of looking at um, non-human animals um, as a psychological beings was a new concept. Um, a neuroscientist, of course, uses and psychologists use um, animals in their experimentation based on that tacit assumption. However, openly uh, looking at animals, understanding and studying them has been from a behavioral ethological. So because of the uh, interest and, um, and the importance of people realizing that elephants and other animals are psychological and vulnerable to human violence um, was really startling. And so that's why we started the Karula Center as a way to really um, bring attention to the fact that um, animals, and I would now, since, you know, with plants, um, are sentient beings. And they have, they share the same capacities as we do, if not more. But definitely, we share the capacities of thinking and feeling and dreaming and aspirations and everything like that. So essentially, the Karula Center started as um, a research and education uh, inst- institution. And we began offering courses and um, internships, which we still have. Um, and also, then what rolled into that was uh, a sanctuary, rescue, and that really um so our, our we are really rooted uh in the the concept of, of rescue and sanctuary and it really got precipitated uh this is land of my families and who's lived here for 70 some years and uh it was responsive to someone you know dumping a rabbit in our front yard <laughs> and um so we took the rabbit in and so we started rescuing rabbits And then I was uh, contacted by a research agency. They had, um, oh, so many desert tortoises. The lab was closing, and they were going to euthanize, kill the the, uh, tortoises who could not be reintroduced into the wild. And so these were special needs. They had lost an arm or a leg or, you know, had been abused in some fashion by humans. So um, they asked me if I would take the tortoises. (laughs) And like I said, I always say that, you know, mouth moves faster than brain. And I said, yes. <laughs> so um, uh, we had to scramble. <laughs> we did all the analysis, you know, is it going to be okay? Because this is in the Southwest, you know, the, the, where the tortoises come from is in the Southwest United States, very different climatic and, and um, uh, physiographic uh, uh, terrain. So we built five geodesic domes, and anyway, so we brought them in, and um, we've expanded. Not huge. We've also rescued uh, farmed animals, uh, turkeys and chickens, um, and uh, now we have a sulcata uh, um, in addition to our desert tortoises. And the desert tortoises are endangered. So So tell us, what is a sulcata? (laughs) Oh, a sulcata tortoise uh, is um, from Africa originally, 
And as with a lot of exotic uh, animals, they become kind of a rave. So people buy these little, you know, usually captive bred, and they uh, say, wow, you know, this is great. And then the sulcata starts to grow up. Um, and this is, again, very much like what happens to all exotics. And the people get bored or they're, they're, they can't, they don't feel like they can handle the animal, et cetera. And so they need rescuing. So the sulcata was a very popular and I think still is exotic animal, but they grow, they grow very large, very large, like up to a hundred and even more pounds. Oh. And, and unlike the desert tortoises who brumate, which is the reptile word for hibernation, um, our tortoises brumate uh, for approximately five to six months a year. The sulcata does not, and they require very you know, high temperatures um, all the time. So are they hibernating during the winter? The tortoises uh, begin their brumation usually uh, late fall and continue to the spring. And we figure out, uh, we, we weigh them and we soak them and we weigh them during that time and um, to, to see if they're losing too much weight too fast. If that is happening and reaches a certain threshold, then we pull them out and we gradually warm them, their ectotherms. And, um, and you know, when they first came here, we had to do that to several because they were in very, very poor shape. Uh, this year has been very difficult because we've had such bizarre, well, we have a severe drought here. Uh, it still hasn't rained, rained one day. And um, that the weather has been extremely erratic. And um, they typically respond to a shift and begin, you know, the, the path to brumation when there's a shift in the light. It's less temperature than it is light. But, of course, there is okay. a temperature threshold. What exactly do they do? They, do they just go into their shell well, the geodesic domes, we have like we call little carports for them for during the warm months where they go in. And they also have burrows, which are very fortified. And so when they begin to start to shift in the season, uh, they slow down. They don't want to eat so much and they spend more time in their burrow. And so it's kind of a, you know, it's a judgment call in terms of that. We, we could keep them in there. Um, because they're all compromised in some way, we bring them out, we put them in um, uh, cardboard boxes with hay, and then we have a special room um, for them that is temperature controlled and humidity controlled. And that's where we monitor them during the year to make sure that they're not losing weight too fast. Interesting. Tell us a little bit about the personalities of these tortoises. They're extraordinary. Um, I think that's true with every with every individual, whoever you're with. But they're extremely um, engaging. They love to engage with humans and other turtles and other animals, and they are very distinct personalities. Of course, they've had very distinct um, biographies. You know, of their experiences and all. Again, as I said, um, many of them have lost an arm. They've been chewed by a dog. They've lost an arm. Uh, their shell has been chewed on. Or they've been, uh, one tortoise was held in a closet for five years. And they're just mm. very extraordinary. They're incredibly intelligent and um, sensitive and very open and profound. Absolutely profound. But they're, they, their ages are roughly... Um, they're kind of like tree rings, you know, you, you, you know, because 
or trees, you know, that, um, you know, like when you have trees that are on top of a mountain, they are much older than what they, what you might think because they're small, you know, because of the wind and the elements. And so because of that, we really don't know their ages by their size or whatever because they have been in compromised situations. But um, they range in about between maybe now 10 and in their 80s. What other animals do you have at the sanctuary? We have the desert tortoises, uh, the sulcata tortoise, and um, turkeys. And um, these are rescued domestic turkeys and rescued domestic rabbits and um, chickens. And we also, as best we can, serve as a refuge for the wildlife who are endangered and under tremendous, tremendous stress. They have nowhere to go. As I said, we, had a, we have a very, very bad drought. They have no browse and they have no water in general. And when they do have those things that they're in a very heavy, well, they're populated with people. So we also have a lot of hunting that goes on. So they, we try as best we can. We put out, um, I buy greens, loads and loads of greens from them, from the co-op, uh, collard greens and all, so that they have something that is, uh, that has the vitamins. Um, we put out water and some other food because they're not just the deer. Um, we have puma and bear and raccoons and skunks and possums. So we try to, you know, create a place of, of security for them and, and rest and, and, and these kind of basic elements as much as we can. I do that too where I live, but I don't have, you know, I don't have near the area you do. But we do have raccoons and deer and sometimes skunks and lots of birds and things like that. I sometimes wonder if I'm doing the right thing to feed them because we're always told not to feed them, but mm-hmm. you must feel differently. You must have a different view of that. There, there is a, a, a desire, and I wrote a book called Carnivore Minds um, in 2017 with Yale, which really focuses on pumas and uh, orcas and all the loathsome creatures, you know, like grizzly bears, et cetera, rattlesnakes. And when you really dig into it, and again, Charlie Russell, which I'll talk about that book later, and Charlie in particular, most of the regulations that come from the agencies, the wildlife agencies and enforcement agencies are myth. There is no foundation. So when you really look at it, and, and it's not just me, we're talking about people like Charlie Russell, um, Charlie Vandergoch, Enos Mills, this is yours, for example, grizzly bears, uh, they rarely, rarely, rarely harm a human. Um, if they do, it's because they feel extremely threatened or they're somehow uh, seriously compromised, like they're very old and have, have no food. And yet they're pictured as these dangerous maniacs. Now, subsequent, after years and years and years, decades and decades, hundreds of years of being persecuted, all pumas, bears, um, they've suffered you know, trauma. In fact, when you speak to uh, someone from the agency or whatever, like Charlie used to talk about when there was a dead bear who was shot, it's not unusual to find multiple bullets, not from that from the lethal incident, but rather from a previous um, being shot at. So in, in probably every single bear has either been shot at, been wounded, or witnessed their mother being shot or someone that they knew being shot. And that's basically how they live. They live in a war zone. So the idea of not feeding is really 
it's a myth in the sense of the animals. I'll tell you, for example, the wild turkeys. We put out food for them, and if you know, uh, and and in, it's expensive. And you know, I'll be sitting out there, and if they don't need it, they they don't come. They don't come around. They they go after grasshoppers or bugs, or they take the their beaks and they strip off um, in the field uh, the grains. So they animals you know, make their own living, but we have changed their habitat by constantly noise. There's, you know, people, you know, even mountain bikes, you know, it's interfering. It's very threatening to have a human. A human could be carrying a gun. That's their experience. So they really have no safety and they don't have any browse. People have taken over their um, land. They've driven out, um, for example, they'll drive out with cattle. They drive out the deer and the wolves and, and uh, puma don't have anything to eat. So that's when you'll get a kill of a sheep or something because they don't have their natural habitat. So the myth of not feeding, they won't eat. I'm, I'm just telling you my experience. They won't eat something unless they need to. And, and there's a whole, um, I would call it propaganda, like, oh, don't get close to wildlife, you know? And the reason why is, you know, there's psychological, I go into my book, but a large part of it has to do with if we have empathy with our animal kin, does create empathy and sympathy, and the agencies um, are funded largely by hunting. Yeah. So um, then there's all these stories and myths made up about uh, rabies and stuff, and that is true. There are rabies and there are distemper and things like that. But relatively speaking, it's, it's minor. I mean, it's not that you should be stupid about it. It's just that we really need to start looking at our animal kin as kin, as, as refugees in need. They are refugees in need. It's a huge issue. I mean, those of us who realize these and under, understand these facts, but the majority of people simply don't. And there seems to be a lack of concern for disrupting any sort of what shall I say, typical farming. So that's how they rationalize killing the wild animals. I mean, how do you, I mean, I think this is such a noble task that you've taken on, but it's, it's huge. It's just huge. I mean, I think Judy and I both have encountered, you know, having conversations with people trying to get them to, to appreciate wild animals. And they're just... It's like, yeah, I, yeah, we love to see them when we hike. But, you know, if, if, if they're killing, you know, something we want to eat, then they should be killed. It's very frustrating. So how do you perceive this all changing? Well, I, I, I think it is changing. I mean, that's our organization. And, in fact, we're really sort of, well, it feels like we're constantly redire- <laughs> redirecting because things are changing in the world. But, um, you know, is to try to get the word out in terms of the myths. And it's really hard. I mean, even me talking about now of putting out food is somewhat um, on, the, on the line, will be perceived as being on the line. And, um, you know, I might be the target of an investigation of breaking the law. I mean, you have things like, for example, um, and if you look at my Carnivore Minds book, uh, it, it, you know, it talks about how the agencies have all these, you know, on their websites, right, the wildlife agencies in different states, how to bait a bear. 
you know, and, um, and you bait a bear and you shoot it, right? That's how you get a bear. And this is not just me. I'm talking about um, there are sites of people who have put out food for bears because the bears are needy and um, they're put in jail or they're, they're, you know, fined and, you know, vilified. So right. because they do the same thing as baiting, except they don't kill the bear. So, and, and, and other animals, same thing with deer. So, um, and, and in my book, I give specific examples of individuals who have, individual humans who have suffered dr- terribly and have been persecuted by the agencies and the government who are basically just being friends and neighbors with, with animals. So how do I see this changing? I think that now with all of these extreme you know, changes in the world, people are one, hopefully, becoming a much more appreciated. Now, Joni Mitchell said, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Well, it's going. The deer are going, the bears are going, the raccoons are going, and I'm just speaking of here in Oregon, and the birds are going. And if you don't think that's true, you better look around because they are going. And it's going to be very, very lonely. Not only that, you'll get further breakdown and it'll cause more problems for us. So how do I see it changing? Just by putting out the word. I'm trying to, the book I wrote, Carnivore Minds, is rather technical. Um, I did that because I needed to be able to have, show a strong scientific rationale and foundation for the assertions that I was making. So things like neuropsychology and neurosciences, it's very well established that all animals, and now it looks like plants, have these capacities that we do for trauma, for feelings, emotions, uh, relationships, etc. And so that's why that that's what I was saying and sort of debunking it and not sort of but debunking the myths which are deep in science and deep in the agencies and all for psychological and economic reasons. There was a scientist who was maintaining maintaining that you know like killing an elephant is murder and killing an orca or putting an orca in an aquarium is is you know, terrible and violation of basic rights. But it's okay to eat fish. (laughs) And it's okay to kill deer because they don't have feelings and relationships like those other animals. And this is a scientist who's saying it. And this is a scientist who's read my books. (laughs) And it's not my, you know, the stuff that I do, I, it's not really original. I put all the existing science together. That's what, what I did and opened my mouth. So I drew from neuroscientists and psychology, which are the hard scientists, and said this is all the biomedical models. For example, um, the animals who are used in experimentation brutally. These are cats. These are mice. These are octopuses. They're, you name it. And they wouldn't be using them as subjects for the purpose of understanding humans and finding things for drugs and da 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 disease for humans, mental as well as physical, unless they had the same stuff that we do. So we have this tacit culture of recognizing that we all have the same brains and feelings and capacities across species, but it's never open. And it's still, even though people who are quote-unquote animal advocates don't go that far. A lot of them, they don't do that. So, you know, what we try to do and encourage other people, um, and I'm trying to write some more, you know, less techno-academic-y kind of things, um, that lays the foundation, the legitimacy, um, if you believe in science. So our science that we believe in and that say that informs our society and informs our policy says that 
the that that the animals we look at and the trees are just different on the outside but they're really the same on the inside and when i say the same on the inside that means that they have the same kind of you know cogs and wheels and capacities that we do they obviously have a very different ethical system just like the native americans who were um subjected to genocide by white colonials in in this country they have a different ethic they are part of nature and they're respectful of nature and they understand that uh in your book elephants on the edge you talk quite a bit about the emotions of elephants and it's really fascinating the the examples that show that they have these emotions the whole as you put it the whole rainbow of emotions mm-hmm. uh could you talk a little bit about that like i was really fascinated by that they recognize the clothes that people who hurt them wear and people who don't hurt them wear and the mi- mirror and and all of that clothes thing um is is it was a researchers in in, in africa in ambaselli and they noticed that the elephants responded very differently again to those who were not hunters and those who were or you know that's been experiments with with other animals and the, i think it's the first chapter in elephants on the edge i described this elephant called happy and there is a campaign right now run run by the non-human personhood project uh, headed by Steve Wise that is trying to get her out of the Bronx Zoo and she was uh one of the individuals they hooked up this not Steve this is other people researchers they hooked up this big mirror and they have this very strict protocol to see whether she and the other elephants could recognize themselves like the touching you know a spot on her head so um they've done that experiment with uh chimpanzees and dolphins and various things and sometimes an individual shows that they recognize themselves and some people uh individuals don't in my opinion it's a stupid thing <laughs> i mean you know it just shows the bias of uh you know one why do we care i mean <laughs> you know i hardly look in the mirror which you probably can tell um that you know i mean when i say stupid it's like oh my god it's like so culturally really these are adults doing these kinds of experiments i mean why so um you know it, 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 and and you see the elephants and if you listen and this is something that charlie russell and 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 really sensitive people who are very cognizant daphne sheldrick who passed a few years ago who founded uh, the David Sheldrick um trust in Kenya. Um Daphne's extraordinary and I quoted her, you know, every time I would write something I would always share it with people who had spent a lot of time and Daphne was number 1, Carol Buckley was another, but Daphne really had a very, you know, she was a a healthy, normal, loving person. Did not have any agenda. Uh through them supporting the elephants and helping these baby these orphaned elephants um recover from trauma in some fashion and try to 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 restore and to nurture the elephant society which is very very sophisticated so as i always say you know a question here is that if we all have the same you know brain structures and processes and i'm not the only one that says that um it's all verified in neuroscience and psychology if we all have the same structures and processes and capacities why don't the animals do to us what we do to them hmm? they certainly can and elephants do kill people that's under severe severe trauma there in the carnivore minds there's a woman oh gosh no i don't remember her name uh, extraordinary 
it's in the um, alligator crocodile thing and she was from Australia um, and she was an environmentalist very sensitive and she was out paddling and she wasn't you know like a tourist out there she knew it and the the park guy said you know be sure you don't go down this thing or whatever anyways they have what they call saltwater crocodiles and humans are on the menu it just is, you know, and um, so she's realized halfway down, uh-oh, I went down the wrong channel, and lo and behold, she was um, encountered a crocodile, and the crocodile encountered her, tossed her over, and um, she proceeded to sustain what they call death rolls, where the crocodile holds the, the, could be a deer, or, you know, antelope, or a person, in this case, it was her, held her, and then, you know, rolls with the attempt, um, I guess it is, to drown, to drown um, the prey. And so she sustained that three times. It was extraordinary. She was injured. She managed to get to shore, and she did was saved, which is, again, extraordinary. Anyway, she wrote about it. Beautiful. And she said, while she was going through this, it's kind of like a Woody Allen thing. I saw my life flash before my eyes, but it wasn't my own. Um, you know, she said, uh, she said, I was, my feeling was outrage. I think that was the word she used. What? Me? Food? I mean, what's going on here? I'm me. I'm a human. You don't eat me. <laughs> and so um, she wrote about that. And she talked about that concept of human privilege, you know, where, you know, we hold ourselves up, even her, you know, who's an extraordinary, profound, very deep, philosophically examining person. We have this assumption of like, you know, well, we don't die, you know, we're not supposed to be someone's food. And um, that's really the barrier, this very implicit, you know, I, I, that's kind of a reaction I could relate to, like, you know, I'm a nice person. Why would you want to eat me? You know. <laughs> so, um, anyways, that's kind of you know my opinion is that science needs to be science of the heart, and um, we need to uh, disable this human privilege and start listening, uh, and start understanding how to be animals, how to be nature, because nature runs on a very non-violent agenda. You know, everyone says it's so tooth and red and claw. It's not. And in fact, in the Charlie book, Talking with Bears, Conversations with Charlie Russell, you know, he, he talks about that, you know, how uh, this one incident where he lives in, he used to live in Alberta and in, in the woods. And so he saw all these deer radiating out while he was on a walk. And um, he, you know, investigated and he saw there was a cougar, puma, that um, had killed one of the deer recently and was pulling it into an area, kind of a safe place to start eating. And what he found striking was that the rest of the herd was just about 100 or some meters away and they'd stopped and they were eating. And so he told this to a biologist and she said, well, that's because they don't feel, just like I said earlier, that's because they don't <clears throat> feel anything. And so, you know, Charlie, but we had conversations about this because I had a similar experience. And the point is, is that when you're, they do feel grief. I mean, I've seen it. And other people have seen it up close in rattlesnakes. There's a chapter on that. Um, of, but they're not like us. <laughs> you know, you, you know, they've they got to keep going. They've got to keep eating. And it's not traumatic in the way of our violence to animals because it's expected. It's not fun. No one wants to die, but it's expected in kind of the formula of nature. 
So everything settles back into a piece again. Cougar ate, needs to eat, you know, go on. So that's very different than our present dominant human psychology. And, and, and it's not violent. I mean, you know, violent technically, if you look it up in the dictionary, it is violent, but not violence like the way we do it. This, was, this is not violence. That's why I also say our Carilla Center for Nonviolence is because the animals are not violent. They do their job and they leave. I mean, that's it. You know, and they do it because they have to do it. I don't know why they're carnivores, but they're carnivores. That's the way they, you know, evolved. Um, but that's part of their job and that's how they live. So I, I know that you've done a lot of uh, work on determining that certain animals have PTSD, correct? Mm-hmm. Um, and I can see where it would be fairly obvious in a captive animal. But how do you determine that with a wild animal? And is there any recourse to help them overcome that? Let me just say a little bit about um, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, which is a technical uh, diagnosis. And complex PTSD is typical it, when you look in the DSM, which is the psychology kind of Bible, you know, you, that has everything listed and all things. And, and psycho- uh, PTSD was the only diagnosis that was not intra generated intrapsychically. That is to say, you know, if I go into a therapist and, you know, they always, for insurance, have to write down the number and do the diagnosis, right? Even if some therapists don't really believe in it. So, you know, I go in there and they see my symptoms and I talk about this and they'll say, you know, major anxiety or depression or whatever, right? And, um, and it could be related, correlated, like, um, you know, my mother died or I lost my job or, you know, something like that. But it, it's never, never understood someone caused it. With trauma, PTSD, there's an implicit agent <laughs> who causes it. It's not just in my mind. It has to do with it was caused by someone on the outside or something that was experienced. It's kind of famous, I think it's Sandra Bloom, who's a psychiatrist, coined this, I'm not sure. But trauma, the real, the realization of trauma and what that was, changed the question from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. So it, PTSD has had a very um, ter- sort of turbulent history, and it continues to. Looking in the history, a Roman general described his some of his men as, as having his soldiers, as, as having these symptoms. But um, it really came to the fore uh, with the, um, during and after World War I. Shell shock, it was called shell shock. And it was very um, humiliating and it was hidden because like, you know, that the people were cowards and, and all of that. Uh, then of course there was Second World War and it kind of was unavoidable. You had the concentration camps, you had, you know, the veterans, you had people who were civilians that were, had sustained terrible things like bombing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and death. So essentially, um, the PTSD, um, people started really studying it. Bessel van der Kock was one of the earlier ones. He's a psychiatrist, and he was working with the Dutch resistance, I think it was, during Second World War. And then, of course, there were the Holocaust survivors, um, very severe, and that really sort of deepened the study 
and looking at how trauma passes across generation, transmits across generations. So um, then the neurosciences kicked in and started, that was like psychology and psychiatry, but then neurosciences became a very strong field and a lot of research was in there looking at affective, you know, all of that kind of stuff, how it affects the brain, et cetera. Uh, than the Vietnam War. So anyways, it's had a very tumultuous kind of thing because a lot of people didn't want to go there. Um, That's a story unto itself. But um, when you have a diagnosis, a lot of times, if with that phrase, what happened to you? In other words, if you know what happened to a person, whether they're saying it verbally or like the young elephants in Africa um, that started my work in this, um, we knew, you know, looking at their history. They were orphaned when uh, helicopters came down and massacred their family. And then they were grabbed. They saw their their family and their mother killed, dead. Uh, These were babies, you know, like baby babies. And then they were grabbed and tied often to the bodies of their family. Then they were uh, brought into trucks, translocated, brought to a place that was not their home. There were parks that they were trying to repopulate in South Africa, in this particular case, uh, to build up the populations which had been decimated, and they were preparing for ecotourism in the fact that now apartheid was was going to be completing, and that that people would you know uh, would would start to come back, which they did. So these young elephants um, uh, were suffered all a series of trauma. So it was really complex trauma. All of these things I named. They didn't have a family to nurture them, which means if you are thinking about the brain as a model heuristic, the brain is shaped, informed, all the synapses and everything like that, your emotions, your definition of what is real, you know, and and, and what is normal. Mothers and family, they're in a unit of, of the family unit with all their siblings and cousins and aunties. That's the kind of the nucleus of elephant society. And then these young males did not have, they had, didn't have that. So it's not just what happened to them, but what they didn't have. And they didn't have this second fate of socialization, which is with um, older bulls. So they stay with their family um, and, until like they're 10, 12, it depends, you know, 10 between 9 and 12, depending where and when the circumstance. And they're either kicked out <laughs> or they leave and they join an all bull group or area. And they are mentored in the same way from the brain. In other words, um, they start to, to mature just like human children. And they do that within this elephant society. And it's, it's important to understand that it's the shaping of the emotions in the brain and what constitutes knowledge and normality and how to respond. And they um, remain really uh, under the wing of this tutelage of these older bulls until like they're 30. And that's when become sexually mature. And then they start going into must and start, you know, looking for for gals. And um, so these elephants had nothing like that whatsoever, nothing. So when you look at their history, which is what I looked at their biography, it just fell out. In other words, you're halfway there at, at understanding what happened to them without even knowing their symptoms. You know, in, in many cases, if you hear the story of someone who's experienced thing, you're, you know, you don't even have to even know the symptoms. In fact, I did a, I did a um, but they did show symptoms. They sexually assaulted rhinos. They killed rhinos. 
Um, and subsequent to that, um, my research also showed when I investigated it that um, mothers were elsewhere, mothers were neglecting their babies, um, males were killing males, never happens. There was infanticide, never happens in the wild, never. So all the neurosciences and neuropsychology, given the input, what I told you, what they experienced, predicts symptoms of trauma. And if they don't, that's the interesting part, right? <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, if they don't show those things, it's like, wow. Um, but that's really the case. So back to your, that was a long story, but try to give you the background for it. So, for example, the grizzly bears that um, Charlie was uh, encountering um, in Upper Washington Glacier National Park in Alberta, Waterton. I mean, he grew up there his whole life. He never carried bear spray, never carried a gun after a teenager, never. And, um, and he started carrying bear spray, like, like he says, when I remember. <laughs> um, you know, he was a very seasoned, smart person. He spent his whole life trying to understand, not study, trying to understand bears. So he was very perceptive. But basically, they're all traumatized because of the way they're treated. They're shot. They don't have their food. When they come out of hibernation, uh, the bears, as you mentioned, they come out of hibernation. Typically, for grizzly bears, they would have a dead bison, buffalo. But um, the colonials and the farmers and the, and the cattlemen shoot them all. And they drove them out just like they drove out the First Nation people. So a, a grizzly needs that pulse and the children need that pulse of calories because they're basically depleted from a long hibernation. And so they might kill a cow. Um, because they don't have their usual, you know, traditional kind of thing. Um, but they're all traumatized because they've been shot at. Uh, the children of, of uh, orphaned are traumatized by trauma transmission. Okay, and trauma transmits by neurobiologically through stress hormones, right? And it also, um, from experience and social interaction. So if you meet a traumatized bear, you know, it, it throws everything off kilter. And so... It's easy. You know, I say that all the animals around here are traumatized. It's amazing um, that more animals don't quote-unquote act out. But you have to realize, like, when you have an elephant that kills someone, whether it's free-living elephant or free-living bear or one in a zoo, um, it's because of trauma. I mean, it's the same with us. You know, the elephants in zoos are... They've been taken as babies, typically. They're tortured. They call it training. It's tortured. They don't have their mother. They've been taken. It's horrible. And they live in a prison. They live in a prison. The climate's not right. They, you know, think about it. And something that really, really is important. Non-human animals um, have very, very deep relationships, not just with their own species, but other species and the land. And basically, when you take an animal and you rip them out, you're ripping out the fibers of their psyche. You're tearing them down uh, tr terribly in that way. So how is, it, how is it to diagnose it? Like I said, it's just easy. So, for example, I mean, you know, I can't, if I walk out and I see a bear, am I going to say, oh, he has PTSD? No. I say there's a high probability that that bear is traumatized. 
You've been listening to a KPOV Critical Conversation. To hear more engaging interviews on important topics, please visit kpov.org slash critical conversations.